Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Henry and this week I'm joined by Matt Beer and Mike Kazma. Now, you guys both like downhill mountain biking and for all of the hmm, criticisms floating about for how the races are broadcast, we have to admit it is a great year's worth of racing. Leger was no different. We're in the US time zone, so it makes it a bit more difficult. But did you guys manage to watch the race? Did you just watch the highlights and what did you think of it? Yeah, I watched the race and I thought it was awesome. It was such a good, I don't know. It seems like this whole year, it all comes down to those last few riders, which is great. Like you, you don't know who's going to win. I think how many, we've had a bunch of different winners this year. And and this one was so good to see Benoit get the the top spot after trying for so, I mean, he's, I think he's 30 now. So he's been trying for a lot of, a lot of years and he did it in France in front of like a home crowd basically, which is awesome. Yeah. I worried if after qualifying, after the kind of, repeating fastest qualifier winning the semi-finals and then not delivering last week was well, so, you know i was worried he was going to repeat that and then if it happened twice i'd worry it may, might get in his head a bit mm-hmm. you know i was really relieved for him that he actually he won and, and an amazing one too matt these downhill courses do you think they're really kind of right now representing kind of what true downhill is it feels like there aren't that many courses that we kind of complain about anymore they all seem pretty good yeah i think uh downhill is definitely at the top of its you know sport right now. like the the sport is amazing to watch right now uh the semifinals you know you could take it or leave it uh but it, it is more racing so there's a lot more action and yeah the courses are pretty wicked um i'd also like to add that i kind of like the new addition that they made with the the cones and the pylons opposed to the race tape it makes it mm-hmm. look a lot cleaner and i don't know if that's actually tougher to visualize the course as a rider but it looks good on camera yeah, it doesn't get tangled up in the, it doesn't get like tangled up either. You know, sometimes people pull the race tape and there's just a whole big mess. At least this way, when they bash a, a gate, basically, they're kind of, that's all that happens is one of them goes flying and the, there's not as yeah, much of Yeah, but two people issue. had, was it Jay Williamson and Dakota Norton? I mean, I don't know if they were crashing anyway and they tapped on, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. it looked like, ugh, it looked like maybe it had a, a bit of role to play. But then again, them's the brakes, right? You don't hit trees for a reason. And if you, yeah. you know, um, Cool. So the results, just to fill in, it was won by Marine Cabaru in the Elite Women. Followed, I mean, the the women's podium is pretty cool because there are a lot of people with their best ever results, including Monica Harasnik in second, Nina Hoffman, Millionset in fourth, and Gloria Scarzi in fifth. And then, of course, in the Elite Men, it had sort of a kind of a who's who kind of five <laughs> riders all on top of their game at the moment: Benoit Coulange, Andreas Kolb, to Loris Verger, Jackson Goldstone in fourth, and Loic Bruni in fifth the racing was incredibly tight that podium of the male elite is covered by uh, 0.7 of a second so very 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 tight of course there was the elite xc as well with mona uh mitawala i'm getting so names about the name i'm getting so nervous about the names <laughs> mona uh mitawala and victor Coretzi winning both the elite male and female races there um Matt, we're going to do the review in focus now, and it's actually very apt because this is a bike that is raced on the World Cup downhills by Taylor Vernon, maybe not having a factory team, but they definitely have a presence. And we're going to, of course, talk about that prime downhill bike. Can you just give us a brief synopsis about what this bike is, where it's from, and how and where you tested it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I actually had this bike for quite a few months. Uh, We got it back uh, just before Christmas, and you know, snow and winter came. And so we didn't actually get to testing it until later in the spring, this, uh, this, this season. 
Um, but yeah, the Prime Rocket, it's a full carbon, full 29 downhill bike. And they're a company that's based in Poland. And yeah, they've got Taylor Vernon on there uh, on the World Cup scene. And he's running it with a new linkage that can convert it to a mullet or mixed wheel setup for smaller riders or for people that just uh, seem to rock that trend. And you said in your review that you would actually run an angle set in, in this bike. Now, do you think that's indicative of the fact that this bike just isn't slack enough or the fact that probably actually the next wave of downhill bikes, the next trend that's going to come through is actually probably going to be headset adjustment on all bikes, both in terms of maybe reach and angle. Um, and do you think it would just, you know, what were your views on that? Do you think an angle set really would solve all its issues? I mean, I think that could be dependent on the rider and, uh, and their setup preferences, but, um, yeah, it would be cool to see more options because this bike had, no adjustments other than like raising the fork in the crowns or the stanchions in the crowns um, or adding a, a headset like that. So like you could make some very small tweaks, but there wasn't like any chainstay adjustment or, you know, unless you um, get your hands on this new rocker link that can convert it to a mullet wheel, then you're kind of like it's set in its ways. So it's like a pretty, pretty cut bike the way it is. And Kaz, do you think that's the next, do you think that could be the next um, you know, we've got some of the bikes in for field test and some of them are, you know, that Polar Omni has, I can't say Polar just kind of pisses you off as <laughs> that reach dust headset. Do you think that's what the next sort of frontier is going to be in bike design perhaps? I mean, I think it's a nice feature to have. We kind of see it with some trail bikes and some, I mean, one thing we, we've been talking a lot about how in through headset cable routing is horrible. We've mentioned that a lot, but if you get rid of the through headset cable routing and keep the head tube the same size, it makes it super easy to run a reach adjust headset or, uh, you know, or some kind of angle adjust type thing. So I think that's a nice feature that bikes can have, especially a downhill bike where companies aren't making as many sizes and where racers are going to be pretty particular about their setup. I don't think there's too many racers. You can just take a bike out of box and say, this is perfect for me. I don't want to adjust anything. So, um, yeah, I do think that having some sort of reach or angle adjust is a great, great feature. And yeah, if they work well and they don't creak and that type of thing, they're definitely a good addition. And that leads us on to the next question, which is sort of the, the commenter's question for this week. Um, ABC says, awesome bike in review. Just out of curiosity, what limits downhill bikes to 200 mil of travel? And is it that current downhill tracks more is just not needed or indeed slower? Matt, why do you think we've settled on 200 mil as the, the point that all downhill bikes settle on? Well, I guess, yeah, it's a, you know, a good question to ask, but also one that's, uh, kind of come back around like this bike had slightly less than 200 mil, 195. So you see that with some full 29 inch downhill bikes, they're maybe limited by how close that wheel gets to the rest of the frame as it compresses. But then on the other end of things, um, like a mullet wheel, you look at that new commensal Supreme V5, that one has 220 mils of travel and the we are one non production downhill bike that I got a chance to ride over crankworks. That one also has more than 200 mils of travel. So I think you're starting to see these bikes kind of creep up in numbers, uh, in terms of like wheelbase, the head angles going down, the travels going up. I mean, riders and racers are going faster than ever. So maybe they're looking for a little bit more comfort support. Um, yeah bigger and better i guess 
Do you think you want a longer travel fork to go with that? Or do you think that that just gives you more room for less bottoms out, less rear suspension bottom outs? You can just kind of ride the front fork. Yeah. Interesting question too. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to trying it. Like, yeah, as long as, long as the, I guess the limiting factor, there would maybe be like the, the bars being too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd probably come back around to like geometry again. So you'd, but if we it's have, like a vicious, vicious circle, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But if we, if we look <laughs> at what's going on with forks with velocity, sorry, position sensitive damping, imagine if we had a fork that basically, even though it was run at maybe like equivalent to like, you know, 60 mil into the stroke, something really gnarly, that's really where the fork just started. And so you can probably hear my garage door going off in the background there. But wouldn't that be amazing if, then it was able to just track and extend out of the stroke, you know, by a huge amount, even though that it's, do you, do you see what I mean? There was something like they just ran really, really deep into their stroke. Because I think it's interesting, we're going to these larger diameter forks with, with some brands, um, you know, most notably that new boxes get going to a thicker leg. And I don't know, I think it's only a matter of time before, <laughs> just bring back the monster T already, get it done, just get it done. <laughs> yeah. Um, this week, we're actually going to go into, Matt, you're getting to know. We're going to talk about everything, you know, life out in Newfie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Racing downhill and even giving World Cups a crack. We recorded this just before your very good result at Sun Peaks a couple of little while ago. Oh, yeah. In that, I'm talking about you getting back between the tape. Maybe we'll have to do a part two when you're national champ again next year. Oh, geez. No, I don't have that in me. <laughs> The dudes Amazing. out there flying. Yeah. Well, I hope you all enjoy this podcast. Thanks. Matt Beer, welcome to your getting to know. Hey, thanks for having me, Henry. Are you a bit how do you feel about this sort of long form podcast talking about everything with your relationship with mountain biking? Yeah, one-on-one with you. I think uh, you're going to ask some great questions and oh, I don't want to chat too day. much about me. You know, <laughs> how, you know how I operate, but... Because <laughs> we started we started Pink Bike pretty much at the same time. I'd, I was working a bit as freelance, but I kind of got to Canada, came on, and we were sort of thrown in the deep end oh, with yeah. that Sun Peaks field test in 2021. Yeah, we were the both... Well, I started about six weeks before that, and then you were working remotely... So yeah, I think the first time we met was actually when we convened at Sun Peaks for that yeah. field test in 2021. And we're going to get on to lots of things about testing, about riding, about sort of, you know, how, how we got to where we are. But succinctly, could you just explain what you do at Pink Bike? Right. That's a good question. Sometimes <laughs> I have to ask myself. <laughs> we definitely get to lot. We definitely get to ride a lot of bikes as mm-hmm. tech editors. And so my job... The way I describe it to most people is I get to ride, review, and write about the latest and greatest bikes and gear. Yeah. It's a hard, quite a hard thing to pin down when people ask you what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really have an answer sometimes. I feel like, especially in Squamish, being a mountain bike town, I guess I get really nervous that if I, well, it's a wet few because you're bloody quick on a bike, <laughs> but me, they'll be like, how oh, that doesn't add up. <laughs> so I'm like, get a bit like, I know I get kind of anxious around thinking, telling people what I do. Well, I, normally tell, I normally tell people I review waterproof jackets <laughs> for an outdoor website. All year then, long. Yeah, no, that's what I do. I say I work for an outdoor website and I um, review waterproof jackets. Mm-hmm. And they're like, huh? Sounds like a job. 
Sure is. It sure is. Um, so you're living in BC now. You were from, is it Newfound, Newfoundland? Newfoundland, Newfoundland, Newfoundland. yeah. What was, what was life like out there? It seems like this, the pictures and videos I've seen of it, it seems like this sort of like quite amazing sort of almost brutal landscape in that it's like, it seems like sort of cold and by the sea, but also beautiful and raw. What, what was, what was you up? What was your childhood like there? It's definitely a unique place. It was really awesome growing up there. It's very remote, I guess is the best way to, to sum it up is, is it's the, the far east of Canada. It literally has the most easterly point in North America. So you mm-hmm. can't go any further. To put it in perspective, you can, at one point, you could take an international flight to London in three hours. And then going west from St. John's to Toronto is also three hours. No way. Yeah. I thought in my head, it's like Montreal, Toronto, and Newfoundland, all about an hour apart from each other. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how big was the town that you grew up in? I believe it kind of hovers around 200,000 now. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a big... Yeah. Like we a, had a, you know, a great university, uh, excellent hospital, great sports amenities. Um, but at the same time, the outdoors and the coastline were literally built around, or downtown was built around the coastline. So the proximity to outdoor recreation is, is phenomenal. So you grew up on this, you know, amazing place with access to all these outdoor activities. Do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I have three younger brothers. Three younger brothers. What was it like being the oldest brother? Well, was it pressure to be cool and do rad things? Definitely, definitely not. <laughs> um, I definitely, yeah, kind of was, I don't know how to describe this. <laughs> I was definitely babied, yeah. you know, being the first child. Yeah. Um, and then things, I believe, got easier for my younger brothers. Oh, the, that's The classic. rules got bent a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. Man, that's so that's funny. I feel like that's a lot of eldest children have that viewpoint. And then I, I was the youngest, so, you know, I, I just went the trodden path. And yeah. I think we've spoken about before, but my sisters were like hellraisers. <laughs> So yeah. my parents were so, I was so they easy. They retired. Yeah, they dude, they were like, these kids are <laughs> right, right easy. Because um, your one brother is a sort of professional rollerblader, is that right? He is, so yeah. your parents must have encouraged some level of risk, you know, you being a downhill racer to an incredibly high standard. Him, you know, little sport doing what I suppose is another extreme sport. Totally. What was, yeah. did they encourage you to go and do like, have, have these risky sports? Was it in another sport that kind of started out that you did together and you branched out and did your own things? Well, my parents were great about sort of getting us into sport to begin with. Uh, so we, yeah, loved, you know, athletic pastimes and whatnot, whether those were uh, organized in hockey and soccer. Um, but I think when we found mountain biking and rollerblading, those kind of lended to our more individual personalities and yeah. let us explore uh, both uh, literally and, and figuratively, both in like a landscape and as like a, a person you yes. know, putting on a, a totally. show. Yeah. And we always call you, you know, pink bikes, fast guy, etc. How do you feel about that? Like, because I think that I would say, and I want to talk about, you know, downhill racing is, as, as you've gone through it, but I've had the opportunity to ride some very good riders and you are incredibly, incredibly fast, fucking pinned, full tap. I can't believe how fast you go on a bike. Well, thank you. 
I don't, I don't think, I, w- I want to say that because I think sometimes, I don't know how much, I know we always joke, but I don't know if our viewers at home realise that we've got, uh, you know, next national downhill champion who shreds the living daylights <laughs> out of bikes and has all our trousers down. Like, you're really, really quick. Well, I think we, we all kind of, you know, have our own corner that we, we really have, like, strength in, and I wouldn't say that you are by any means slow. I've seen you out there and you were in your element. You were like blind to everybody else around you and you came flying through one day. And I was genuinely impressed. Oh your shit, speed. Well, I'll take that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that it's funny, but I, hmm, I love riding, but I think I'm quite a risk averse person. I think we spoke about this. So for me, like I, I'm not necessarily like, I don't know, I guess I put stock in different things for riding. Like I love the feeling of just, having a nice my bike and I've happened to crack on at some point, that's really nice. But really my intention when I go riding is not to shred. It's just to be on my, to execute basically processes. Yeah. Um, do you find there's any pressure though with being the fast guy? Do you, do you, when, when we say it, does it make you uncomfortable? No, totally. Because once I get on the bike, I forget about everything else yeah. that's going on. It really helps clear out your head. And what would you say when it comes to riding, you are best at? If, if we talk about descent, is there one aspect, like for instance, I would say that I'm strongest at fast chunder and sort of like that style of turns. I'm probably worse at really, um, I'd say maybe like really slow, steep, like rock moves. Right. Uh, answer isn't something that really I feel comfortable on. Yeah. Um, what, what about you? What, what's your strength, would you say? Well, that's what I grew up riding was slow, techie rock moves. So yeah, yeah my, my strength would be more technical riding and also sort of figuring out fast lines or lines that work quickly. So that's kind of where I feel like uh, my strengths came with racing was you didn't have a lot of time to figure that stuff out. But my downsides, I, I still feel weak at low flat corners yeah. and smoother bike park turns. Mm. I don't know if it's my size, my, like the way I position myself on the bike, but I see other people you know, they transition between a right and a left turn really quickly, or they just have way more confidence in some of those turns. And I mean, you could spend your lifetime sort of perfecting those techniques, but Mm. some of them are ingrained into you from an early age and it's hard to like kick those habits. So you you have an amazing position when you ride. I think that, you know, whether it, I don't know, whether it bleeds into helping in in any one regard is, is not what I mean by Amazing, and I think we all have different riding bikes, but when I see your position on the bike, that's the sort of position I'm trying to replicate, that's what I'm saying. Um, it's very forward. Is that something you've worked on, or is that, does that come quite naturally? Because I think that if people saw two people ride the same section, they saw you on the bike, and somebody of the exact same stature riding a bike how most people ride it, they would probably see, they'd probably be surprised about how much you're on the front, and also how tall you stand. Yeah. Is that something you've worked on, or is that just natural for you? It's just natural. It's where I feel most comfortable and I think works for my body shape and type Mm. because I I feel like I have short arms. And when I ride the bike, I feel like I'm always pushing the front wheel of the bike ahead of me. Like I'm trying to get off the back of the bike more. And then I see myself ride and I'm maybe a little more centered. And that might explain why I prefer a much firmer fork than most people who maybe ride with their hips back and yes. higher over the seat. Well, you don't seem to angle from the hips much. Yeah. In a, in a way that, like I said, I, I think that it's the style that I try and 
I've said it before, like I've, I try and mimic your, your position because I think that it's how I want to write. I think it, and I don't know if you'd agree with this. I think it bleeds into writing flat, um, writing clips. Well, your right. style of position, would you agree with that or? I grew up riding flats. So, and I also grew up riding trails with no turns. So I think <laughs> sort where of, is this place? I want to go. <laughs> you'd love it. So I think dropping your heels and kind of standing tall with your legs and, and pushing back behind the bike or, you know, standing more upright is sort of where I learned that position. Um, kind of forgot where I was going with that, but, but it's, it's, <laughs> it is very, so I just, I know, I think it's really interesting. I'd say, I'd say for all pink bike listeners who are interested, I would say next time they see a video of you ride, t- take note because for me, the best suspension you're ever going to get is your elbow, your your forearms and your um and your legs, right? Yeah. Being able to bend and accommodate the bike yeah. is far better at preloading, reacting to terrain than any suspension could ever be. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, fucking two hundred mil helps. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but <laughs> in terms of how how we keep our mass a consistent height. Um, so growing up, you found downhill or you found mountain biking. Did you ever do cross country? Was it straight to downhill racing? No, I guess to give like a sort of quick intro to how I got into riding was, yeah, the proximity to the the rugged trails around Newfoundland and those kind of hug the coastline with the coast being so close to the downtown core, the city. It was quite easy to go out for a 15 minute to an hour long hike. Yeah. Uh, and I remember seeing, like I was, you know, a regular kid bouncing around the neighborhood, jumping off wooden ramps on a bike like most kids do. but I remember hiking and thinking like, oh, how could I, you know, that'd be a neat rock to ride down someday. But I never really, you know, mountain bikes weren't capable of that at that time until I saw this one French dude (laughs) riding these, you know, unheard of trails that people just hike. And he was like, no helmet, you know, cantilever brakes, maybe a suspension fork. This was like the early nineties. And I just remember seeing him and that was like, the breakthrough moment. I was like, that's what I want to do on a bike now. And so, yeah, I I grew up riding these super technical trails on a hardtail and learning how the brakes work and just always fooling around outside of my, my house on the, on the neighborhood streets and sidewalks and everybody else's stairs and rock walls and, and just kind of honing those skills, whether that was deliberate practice or just having some fun. And how old were you when you got your first like actual mountain bike as opposed to yeah just kind of having a bike which was maybe like a a, a bicycle shaped <laughs> department object. store bike yeah yeah. yeah 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 i guess that transition happened in 1999 i had a kona mooney mula which was like an aluminum hardtail with maybe 90 mils of front travel v brakes um you know pretty pretty basic bike but way more expensive than what most kids yes. would have from, you know, in their garage these at that time. Yeah. And how did then that then transition to racing? Can you remember your first, like I said, did you start off, a lot of kids start off in cross country and sort of, or BMX perhaps before getting to the exciting sort of downhill thing, which is in the very, you know, which is also very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. How did you get into downhill? What was your, what was your pathway like to that? Well, mountain biking in Canada wasn't huge. It was, it was growing, uh, but I never really saw any coverage from it. You know, I remember way back, there was like some old TV shows 
stuff like that but it was very hit and miss it wasn't organized like hockey or soccer you know the more generic sports yeah. uh, that are easy to come by and so i just didn't have that exposure until i saw some magazines and followed along there a little bit but racing didn't really pique my interest because like i said it wasn't organized we didn't have any real events it was like maybe once a year in st john's there would be some type of kind of boring cross-country race where they just bomb around on on gravel double track and some single track and there was no center like bmx track or skate park even to to go learn and practice these skills on so getting into racing happened a little bit later in my early 20s for me i yep. basically grew up as a free rider Sick. Uh, seeking <laughs> out like yeah seeking out the the wildest rocks and trying to build in this really dense tough landscape uh, and we basically had to build all the trails that we wanted to ride so that was kind of a neat experience because i had a great crew who were really keen to you know uh, spend a lot of time building trails and compared to out west it's it's nothing like it it really took a lot of strength and effort just to get a couple hundred meters of trail in i i think i've seen a video of you maybe it was a da vinci video yeah of you riding with some friends yeah and it really painted a picture for me about what the landscape was like and also how hard it would be to get to get things going there because sometimes here i think you know a lot of the riding obviously is amazing and people put in so much work into sculpting these turns whatever but there's also a lot of stuff where you can pretty much you could ride a motorbike up the hill totally and then you could pretty much dust off a line right yeah yeah like i'm really surprised that trials moto hasn't caught on much out there yet i'm sure it will but uh yeah a lot of the the landscape's very barren rocky low-lying shrubs very dense forest yeah um so sorry long story short to get back to the um the integration into racing was uh, i took a trip to new zealand back in 2009 sort of you know played my hand at like some more local races that uh the shop free ride mountain sports and my friends sort of formed this downhill race series, a toonie race around. And, you know, we'd played that out for a couple of years. And, and during this trip to New Zealand to explore new mountain bike trails and landscapes, I played my hand at a couple of those downhill races and did, did all right, given the local crowd. And what's all right? Uh, like, I, I don't know if this is modesty creeping in here, well, which we no. simply won't do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I absolutely got smoked by this like 14 year old kid, Jake, mm -hmm. but I was excited to race. It was a neat experience. And so on my route home, I stopped at Sun Peaks and participated in the, like the Canada cup finals there. And I was unsure about what category I should go in. I talked to some other friends. They said, oh, you should definitely race elite. And I remember standing at the start line and watching Hans Lambert, who is a previous uh, ex-Canadian national champ as well, absolutely destroy the first turn. And I nearly broke into tears. I was like, oh, I'm going to get smoked. Uh, but I ended up getting ninth, which was wow. really cool. And uh, Jack Reading actually won that race, mm. a name that's still racing today. Yeah. So yeah, that kind of changed my perspective on riding and racing and and that's sort of where that transition happened from like free ride, you know, just recreational mountain biker into uh, not a career, but a path to, to racing. And within your racing, I think different, I think it really varies on individual to individual. I think some people 
everyone, every race has got a weakness, except maybe for maybe two or three in the world. You know, sure. I, I think the the reason that those top riders are what they are is not so much about the things they do well, but it's also indicative of their the thing they're worst at being better. Do you see mm-hmm. what I mean? They're yeah. like a, an absence of a real weak spot. Now, I think some people struggle with the physicality. Some people stru- struggle with um, structure. Some people struggle with nerves. Some people can do all those things really well, but actually they're just not as quick. Right. You know, what was, what was the hardest thing in your racing? That's a tough question. Or what, um, how, how did you cope with elements like the training or the nerves or having to step up for a big race? Yeah, I mean, the the nerves, like I said, I guess the nerves kind of disappeared once you start riding. Like yes. you're in the start gate, your heart rate is racing already. But like once you start riding, hopefully you kind of <laughs> drop all that and you kind of get back into the zone where like you remember what you do. You remember how to ride. There's so many other things going on in front of you that you forget about, you know, the the fear of... Or like the anticipation of racing, um, that's definitely a big head game and takes a little while to to get out of. But I think some of the earlier sports that I participated in, like hockey, I played as a goaltender, and there's definitely like a lot of stress and anxiety that comes with that, and that may have helped me there. Hockey seems like a very aggressive sport, for sure. <laughs> when I grew up, I played a lot of rugby. Yeah, technically, I was actually quite good. Um, I was never aggressive enough. I don't have that. I don't have the desire to either punch one in the face or get punched in the face. I'm just more like, eh, what do you know? Like I, I, I didn't, in, for some reason, that sort of visceral buy-in was never a change. I just wanted to be good at the process. Yeah. And that was, that's what limited me. You're quite an even-keeled sort of guy. Were you aggressive enough for hockey? I mean, because you, I imagine you're quite competitive as well. I was definitely competitive, but I wouldn't say I was aggressive enough either. And that's, you know, I roughhouse with friends and brothers and whatnot. You know, it was basically impossible growing up in a house with four boys. <laughs> but uh, with hockey, yeah, I was I was quite small um, in my preteens and whatnot. So once the the checking part of the game started at a certain level, I kind of gravitated towards being a net. Where yeah, you kind of focused on more of the skills and the and the play of the game itself. Mm. So yeah, I would, I would say I'm a less aggressive person as well. Yeah. I, I always struggle with that. I was, I would play, I played like two years up in rugby. And then when my team went to adults, I was, I, I just, I don't want to do it. Yeah. I was like sometimes, scary. yeah, because the, 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 the adult game was happening on the Saturday and we'd play on the Sunday and sometimes you watch the adult game and I just saw the fights. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I don't want to be 17, just getting absolutely leathered yeah. by some like 35 year old bloke who's going through, I don't know, going through a divorce or something. And he sees me and he just like, I'm just going to absolutely nail this kid. Um, yeah, man, it always, that really, I remember like viscerally, I was like, I'm not, I, I got to feel scared. For sure. I was scared of the aggression. I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, and, I, you know, I mentioned the word competitive then. Are you, a, how, how would you rate if, Scale one to ten, how competitive are you as a person? These days, I would say I'm probably uh, probably an eight. I'm up there. You're still competitive, still very competitive, yeah. yeah? Yeah, whether it's racing or, you know, just messing around with, like, little games you do on your own, like, you know, trying to toss something in the garbage from far away. Like, yeah, yeah I, I would say, like, I'm, I'm competitive there for sure. And so in your heyday, were you a ten out of ten when you were racing elite 
regularly? No, I it was it was pretty even throughout. Yeah, maybe a nine, but I definitely <laughs> didn't like getting beat and yeah, I would always try and find some reason, at least within myself, like why I didn't do better yes. or why that person did why that person beat me and then I'd try and use that, see what they did. It's a very interesting thing that. that finding that reason. Yeah. I think that that can be a really great driving force for what, you know, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a competitive person at all. Like it's, it comes from, when I was a kid, I was unbelievably competitive. And then something happened when I was a teenager, I think maybe linked with confidence mm-hmm. and it made me too uncomfortable to be that competitive. And I like a fight or flight and I decided like, and I just somehow just de-escalated being competitive. And now I, I, I don't, I don't give a fuck, you know? I think that's called being mature too. Well, I don't know, man. I think that it's, I wouldn't say that it comes from maturity. I think that it becomes from the intensity of my competitive feelings are so intense that I don't know how to handle them. Mm. And so it still comes out um, when I have things that I can focus on with me. I'm a very competitive person. I have like a lot of discomfort, but I'm really worried about bringing that energy towards another person. Okay. I guess like, I know that like it runs away from me. And if we were playing table tennis when I was younger, (laughs) I would be there like so into it. And I think a lot of times it would make other kids uncomfortable. And now I I don't, I've kind of like clambered down. But if I was out riding by myself, sometimes I get weirdly into things. (laughs) Like really. I can just see you being very aggressive, huddling over table tennis. Oh man. (laughs) It was, it was in, it was in. (laughs) Oh dude, it was awful. I think I think a power meter on a bicycle is a gift and a curse mm-hmm. because once I have a number to focus on, and I'm there like, how long can I hold this number? <laughs> and I will be turning myself inside out, just going off a chill ride up like Diamond Head, and I'm just like hammering, and everyone's like, what What's wrong with this guy? And I can't help it. It just gets something gets hooked in there, and it's like, um, yeah, it's like a barb in my brain. It's it's really quite intense. Um, so you kind of you started racing downhill. You may be surprised that elite category wasn't the most terrifying place to be. How how many years did you race elite? Kind of really focusing on on getting a good kind of full season was worth racing. Yeah, I would say total number of years is probably about six. There, um, starting two thousand nine was was the last uh, or was sorry the first race that I participated in on a national level. Bit of a jump up from the Tooney races and the locals, local series that I was racing, but um, kind of gave me an idea of where I could place if I had trained and really focused on it. And so I went back to Newfoundland that winter of 2019 into 2010. And, so 2009. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. 2009, 2010, and focused on training in a gym. I rode a lot of indoor BMX at a skate park. Yes. And yeah, that just... I always tell people like, you know, anybody can learn at a pump track and hone their skills regardless of their skill level. So those little bikes, yeah, they don't allow for many mistakes and they're so accessible. So that really helped as well as the gym work. And then um, 2010, I set out to race most of the North American rounds. So like back then there was um, the US Open was at Mountain Creek uh, and then a couple of the Canada Cups as well as Crankworks. And then, you know, st- like 
was on the podium at a couple Canada Cups, um, broke my ankle at Sun Peaks in August, so I kind of missed a bunch of racing there, but then recouped, uh, set back out in the winter to train, and then sort of did the same thing for half the season, jumped up to a couple World Cups within North America. There was like Wyndham, New York, and Mount St. Anne. Yeah. And like qualified for one, didn't qualify for the other, learned what I had to do, and then the next year... Uh, tried to do most of the World Cups and ended up winning the first national champs, which was a huge confidence booster. That was really cool. I, I felt great going into it because... And where was it? Sorry. Sorry, this was at Mount St. Anne, yeah. 2012. Um, it already had a couple decent World Cup results, and so I kind of knew where I stood, and we actually raced half the track at the Mount St. Anne World Cup two weeks prior or something. Yep. I was like, okay, I know this, I know my speed, I know what I can do. And then obviously the level is not quite as high in Canada as it is on a world scene. So um, there was a couple names that I knew I had to beat and made that happen. And um, yeah, I just went, went back the next year with you know more ambitions. And it's really hard to balance that progression and consistency of racing. Yeah, And so I had couple good results a couple crashes um another broken bone another in- injury a finger injury and then uh yeah things kind of petered out from there it was just like it was really intense a lot of travel um doing most of it on a semi-privateer basis i had lots of help from uh, some friends at uh suspension center in switzerland and some other canadian local distributors um helping with parts and some funding and whatnot. So yeah, lots of people along the way, just here and there helped me get to those races and very appreciative of that still. I mean, there are so many achievements that we, you know, that everyone kind of goes through that are sort of, hmm, that are sort of like orbital towards that person's own experience. Mm-hmm. And the things that maybe I'm, I'm like, may, might have ticked off are actually really relevant to things fitting, I suppose, to within like, and we will do it like, one one individuals but to have an achievement like a national championship it must be it's it's like an actual it's like an actual thing it's not it's not made up by me <laughs> or you know oh i went and did this or you know you won a national championship at downhill that must still make you tremendously proud yeah it was really cool that was the um, also the first time that a newfoundlander had won any medal in cycling in Canada. So that was a pretty special moment. Yeah, so cool. Yeah. And obviously the phone call to my parents and other family and friends was was yeah, outstanding. Do you keep any of any like old memorabilia or jerseys or anything? <laughs> They're tucked away in the closet yeah. at my place. And then yeah, my parents have like a nice little plaque and stuff made. So up. cool, man. Yeah. And so that was like twenty thirteen you said that you had a kind of, you know, a maybe a finger injury. What ha- what what was the rest of your elite career like because you won you won two national titles right i did yeah the next one was in 2015 at sun peaks um you said it feels like you don't hold this them both in the same steam uh i do actually because the first one was special obviously and then the second one was unique in its own way because there were some rule changes going on in between there and so this was actually the first time that, you know, Canada's fastest racer at the time, the late, great 
Stevie Smith attended this race in 2015 and you know there was maybe some naysayers and whatnot and said like you know oh, if Stevie was there he would have beat you that first time and so in 2015 he did have a bobble or a crash or whatever he messed up but that's racing that's and, racing dude and so yeah took it home yeah I was going to ask you about that like how I think the landscape is maybe different now within Canadian mountain bike and I think lots of countries have more than one fast guy now you know what totally. I mean? in terms, in terms yeah. of like the world cup top 10 top top 15 um it feels like in that period between yeah 2010 to 2015 with that peak of stevie winning the overall he kind of was canadian 100 oh, yeah. it was like you couldn't talk about one without talking about the other to to beat him would have must have been enormously special because it's not like like you said that there are no more naysayers like i often think about when you would an achievement that might be special to you there's like make something that's like a watertight hit that no one can pick apart mm-hmm. or can undermine with a sentence yeah you know um and to have something that no one can no one has that on you anymore like you did it yeah yeah definitely you know i think solidified my position there in downhill racing at the time Obviously, the level now is insane. Like, I see so many of these young up-and-coming kids, and they're just all so fast. I mean, bikes have gotten better and whatnot, but um, yeah, that was a special day. That was a special day. There was a question that I asked Kaz, and I forgot to ask Alicia, and they're getting to notes. But it's one that I will ask Alicia one day, and it's something I want to ask you. You obviously love riding. Mm-hmm. You're very good at it, very passionate, and you're, I know you to be a very hardworking, conscientious person. Why didn't you turn pro? That's a good question. I th- think my parents would probably say that I didn't sell myself enough. Yes. You know, I've always been a little bit shy to reach out for help. I'm a bit stubborn, like to figure things out on my own. And mountain biking, you know, this was before social media. This was, you know, when you were just going off phone numbers and emails. It's not that long ago. I don't want to date myself here, but <laughs> it was a different time. Yeah. Um, so things weren't quite as readily available in terms of sharing information and it was just harder to reach out to people. I mean, I started late too, right? Like I was, I think it was 22 back then when I was 23, maybe when I started racing. So, uh, I kind of came on the scene late and maybe people were a little bit reluctant to invest any, any time or money into my efforts. And, um, the scene in, in Canada was much smaller. It mm. was, it took a lot more funds to get anywhere to race as well. So it was tough as a privateer to actually make it happen. And yeah, Stevie definitely paved that way for, uh, people like Finn and Jackson, uh, all the other fast Canadians that are going right now, Mark Wallace, like, you know, not to discredit them, but yeah, it, it definitely put Canada on the map as a, country to have downhill racers coming from oh absolutely yeah i think it's it's a funny thing i think the i know what you mean by sort of being happy to put yourself not 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 put yourself out there but being very proactive at hunting down those things because i've worked with various downhill races over the years and it's hard because i've had this conversation some some people are quite savvy, but a lot of people like 
they just want to be fast at riding a bike. They don't give a fuck <laughs> about networking. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And um, and it's, I think it, I think it cuts both ways though, because I think that people that are more maybe self-contained might not have the the thought or the sort of takes a different thought process takes a like, thought to go and there. a lot of mental energy too like you know as a privateer when you're racing out there like just imagine like your bike in the worst condition after hammering some bike park all day long and then you've got to get it tuned up for a world cup race run the next day and you've got to cook you've got to clean you got to get enough sleep you got to focus on the race you got to remember the like you know fine-tune the track go over it in your head and then relax before all that happens again so yeah, it's a lot of work and it can definitely relate when I see other racers, you know, shine in terms of a fast time or a result, but then they don't always make it yeah. as a career. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough sport. It's a tough sport. Tough sport to crack into. Yeah. I think, um, especially being, I think said things are changing a bit now, but I mean, I don't know. It's really, it's a really weird situation because I love World Cup racing i feel that in recent podcasts i've been bagging on it a lot in terms of the infrastructure largely i think it's i do i, I do love World Cup racing i don't want to sound like it's all sour grapes but being a non-european nowadays still but especially during that period because there wasn't the funding i mean i think maybe it's still really 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 hard i mean there's a guy called gabe neron who's a local yeah. rider here yeah. fantastically talented on a bike and I was kind of I mean I think I think we're a few beers to the worst at Crankworks <laughs> but just being like thinking like how is it that you know he won nationals last year and I think he's had a few injuries but like in most countries in Europe if you win the national titles you got a really clear pathway to getting to a full a full season here you win a national title and even now, because it's just so much travel and yeah. so much accommodation. And then if you've got three weeks between a race, that's either a, a transatlantic return ticket to save on accommodation or putting up accommodation somewhere in Europe. Like it's totally. just yeah. prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And, um, and what I find, think is nonsense and, you know, saying it on a bag, but here I go. But like they say, oh, we, it's really expensive to go to Oceania, South America, North America. Yeah, it's expensive for the Europeans. It's cheaper yeah. for everyone else. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And often that's where the, I don't know. It just, I think that hopefully this discovery thing is going to shake things up. I think it needs to be shaken up. I think seeing how the EWS is, I think, or EDR is, was, I feel like there is a desire from Chris Ball and that sort of organisational structure to make it a World Series, to go to the World Cups. But I think that, I think that, the EWS started really well. It's becoming quite Eurocentric. I, I think, I think downhill needs to, yeah. needs to get to South America. It's fucking nonsense. <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. Sorry. Well, to jump back a little bit. Yeah. I should also give credit to some of the more localized race organizers, uh, like the Dunbar and, uh, Stephen actually with the summer series, uh, Northwest cup, uh, just in like, uh, Eastern States Mountain Cup. I think I got that name right. But yeah, just these more localized um, race series. And, you know, that's kind of when things transformed. Like we saw Stevie coming back uh, to race nationals and Canada Cups. Uh, we, we saw Finn attending more. 
and at that time that level brought up the the localized racing like tenfold it was crazy and then you know we have more bike parks hosting races the bikes getting better so everything was is building mm-hmm. and it it's adding up to make less sense for an aspiring privateer racer to go overseas yes. and not qualify it's like they can make more of a name for themselves racing locally you know shooting their own videos and just yeah like but showing themselves off basically right but it's funny though you say i mean obviously it is locally but within bc you could have a series that would rival any world cup series totally in terms of the track imagine going like some peaks to kicking horse to whistler to- and you still have to go 10 hours yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah. um so when did you come to bc then yeah to jump back um so i guess i first you know i spent a couple summers or a couple weeks out here at a time through the summer but i would often return to newfoundland uh <laughs> under the wings of my parents yeah uh live at home earn some cash train and then come back out uh in the, in the spring and whatnot so the first year that i made the full transition to live out west and ride through the winter which is what i realized i had to do was be on the mountain bike and not just in the gym or on a bmx was uh january of 2013 and okay. i just came straight to the north shore because that's basically the only place in canada you can ride year round yeah you know give with, or take yeah give or take vancouver island and whatnot and just fell in love with like the rainforest and sort of that foggy mood near the ocean i was like all right this is 6500 kilometers away from where i grew up and my family and whatnot but there's something about this place that speaks to me and obviously the riding and everything else just made it perfect and how did you because now you're living in squamish you lived in north vancouver for a number of years how have you found living in squamish compared to living on the north shore and also if you could as something of a see an expert in the field could you just (laughs) compare the differences in the riding yeah for sure i mean talk about like uh sort of the social aspect and the and the um the layouts of the cities themselves like vancouver is a huge metropolis at least within canada there's you know the the greater vancouver area has over two million people i want to say um the north shore is a little bit more uh reclusive but it still has a major highway go through it and it's quite busy um and then squamish again the same deal but just even more trickled down uh high density of mountain bikers well all recreation uh athletes or participants outdoor lifestyle participants yeah Yeah. um so yeah squamish the riding is has way a lot more diversity in the types of terrain you know we've got like flatter more meandering rock rolls uh more technical moves and then we have like very long steep descents that are mostly just dirt and root uh whereas the north shore is they're a little bit hmm, more rugged trails generally steeper a lot of the same variety and then whistler is different again Mm -hmm. whistler is like one of the most geologically diverse areas uh within the sea to sky or within bc even like you go to one corner of the valley and the rock is totally different than the other side so yeah between 
you know, that's why this area is so popular between, you know, two hours of driving, you have so much different, the trails are so vastly different. And, you know, I've, I've heard people say they want to keep the North Shore janky. Yeah. Things like this, you know, fun little tidbits that go around. In the time that you live in there, it's probably about nine years. Did you notice the trails change a bit? Because I've ridden in North Shore and I got told that it was going to be this place just full of like, I think like snakes <laughs> and ladders and just ladder to ladder drop to rock roll to step turn. And actually I was like, wow, this is some really nice trail building here. It was really, really great. Um, in terms of I've ridden there, I've ridden some fantastic loamy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not smooth, but like the right, the right amount of rough where you can really crack on with some great turns. Totally. Do you think they've toned down the jankiness or do you think people are just building a greater variety of trails? Uh, there's definitely a greater variety these days, but yeah, the shift away from more of a feature based trail has changed to generally encompass like a, an all, like an, like a nice experience on the a trail. nice experience. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I found coming from, you know, outside of Canada. It's funny because I think there is a d difference between the old style trail where sometimes you do a really weird traverse and this is something just riding around Squamish and you ride one of like the classics and it would be like just the trail builders worked so tremendously hard to move all around this hillside, incorporating these five weird features. Yeah. When the newer school of trails is actually about making the flow and the, the, the sort of tonality of the trail really similar from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as you know, there's some amazing building going on in Squamish and some of the flow for this natural trails is, is about as good as you could hope. Yeah, Whereas some agree. of the oldest trail stuff, it's like, oh, this janky thing over here and then we're going <laughs> to sort of do this uphill side traverse to this yeah. other janky thing and it's very different. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can find those features still no matter where you look in Squamish, Whistler, North Shore, like they're still there. Um, some of them getting rebuilt, some of them you know, getting rehashed, but, uh, it's hard to like make a, a rock drop disappear. Yes. Whereas like a ladder will decay over time. And I think it's just an evolution of how the sport has grown. Um, people want to ride bigger jumps. The bike's gotten longer. They want to ride faster. There's more people entering the sport. So maybe they're building more green trails. Uh, and that sort of blends in with you know, the experts having fun in those easy trails and wanting to build a, maybe a faster, more technical trail, but still have that smooth element to it. So yeah, I would say there's, there's definitely a change on the North shore, but it's for the better. And if we go back to say 18 year old Matt Beer, <laughs> imagine you're growing up in BC. Do you think that if you'd been here now with this sort of free ride scene that's bubbling away in BC at the moment, do you think you could ever imagine a world where you didn't go to racing? You're actually just casing, happy just casing jumps <laughs> off big, big rock rolls? Definitely exploded a wheel or two in my time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's what I grew up riding. But is and... it prestigious, do you think, enough for you to, you know, I mean, like, I think that racing is like, you want a national title? It's really special. Everyone mm -hmm. understands that. Free riding's a bit different. Could, can you imagine a world where you, you'd stuck with it? Yeah, definitely. Because I think not at my peak but there was at one point where like the bikes got really good mm. uh, well like at least my bike changed dramatically for me and that was like 2006 and i got this intense uzi Sick. with like all the best components at the time i could build build it with and i was like yeah this is the bike it can do it all like i could pedal it i wasn't in i was racing but just tuny races and 
yeah if i if i had moved to whistler that summer i don't think i would have started racing at least i wouldn't have come to whistler to race yes yeah and what what do you think of where sort of bc just to get your opinion what do you think like the bc free ride movement with things like tour with things like you know there seems like there's a lot of hmm, influences out here i think that may be unfair to say to some of them i think it's probably bang on with some others um pursuing doing big hooks video parts insta clips do you think that is as i don't know how, how do you feel about it? do you think it is as pure as racing do you think it's how do you how what, what's it in your view i mean they're definitely very talented riders you can't take that away from them um what kind of goals they have uh you know might be less concrete than racing but that's a good way to put it yeah so I think they're just, you know, moving from one move to the next, building something new, um, trying to keep things fresh. And yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Uh, as long as, you know, hopefully they never feel pressure to like produce or like do these things just because somebody else did or they're trying to stay on top of it. It's you always see it in people's riding, like, or at least behind the scenes when they're off the bike, if they're actually enjoying mm-hmm. riding for what it really is. And that's what I've always followed at least. Yeah. So like, yeah, I went from free riding, discovered racing. That was a new thing. Um, and now even like moving away from both of those and moving into a job where reviewing and, and really getting into the nitty gritty like, that's what I'm focusing on and having fun with these days. And, um, whilst you were racing and before joining pink bike, were you working in the industry? What, what were your jobs and your roles that helped support the racing whilst you weren't racing (laughs) uh i've done a lot of shitty jobs from picking up garbage on building sites to digging ditches just making it work yeah but i've also worked in a bike shop um worked at freeride mountain sports back in newfoundland since 2005 maybe uh or back and started in 2005 and then was in between there when i was in newfoundland uh also did some other jobs uh, with the construction and stuff like that. But, um, once I moved out here, I picked up a job through some colleagues at Outdoor Gear Canada, which is a distribution center, uh, for Olin's. It's probably the most well-known one right now, Bell Helmets and stuff like that. So yeah, I was working there as under, uh, as a warranty rep and talking just about other shops why the csu isn't getting warranted <laughs> <laughs> yeah just turning the gopros on and off and then sending them back <laughs> yeah um yeah so i worked there uh with warranty and, and that was sort of my specialty when i was in bike shops was like trying to help people understand what was wrong with their bike and how we were going to get it sorted out mm-hmm. and so i i did a similar role at dunbar cycles in vancouver uh, I went on to work at Rocky Mountain Bikes, also in warranty and uh, quality control and, and dealer support. And I think all of those jobs helped me in in conjunction with the racing and my riding experiences to land a job at Pink Bike. Yeah. And now that you are been been into it a couple of years, I guess you've been two over two years now at Pink Bike. How do you like the testing? Is it something that because I. I, I love the testing as much as ever. Um, I think that sometimes it can be, it's not all, I think people think mountain bike tester, 
that's going to be, it's like working in like people, it's the way that we say it around here. It can sound like, oh, I work in the ice cream factory, making sure it's all delicious, but actually it's not always like that. It's a lot of methodology. It's a lot of sometimes stuff, understanding why things aren't good as much yeah. as understanding why. And sometimes getting in a, a period of riding bikes that actually aren't that much fun to be on or, or components that are unreliable and you know, you, it kind of affects your hobby. How, how do you like the relationship with testing? Yeah, well, first I would state that bikes are a lot better now in general than they were when I started out. It's pretty rare that we have a bike come in for review that, you know, doesn't fit uh, what most people are looking for these days. I still think if there is a bad bike by our standards, there is some element of it that has been set out and designed to work for somebody somewhere. So I always try and incorporate some kind of positive Mm -hmm. aspect into a review even if the overall one's maybe not the best um but i think that you know but i think my sort of passion for what i'm doing right now riding and reviewing bikes and gear stems from way back when i started mountain biking because i was on a hardtail and i had other friends that were lucky enough to have these like ultra high-end bikes at the time like intense m1s like kona stab deluxe like really sought after prolific bikes of the time and i would just ask if i could jump on them hit some little tiny kicker or jump and, and see what they did see how they reacted or you know try these brakes here and try these you know tires on this on this bike and whatever so yeah that, i think that wasn't totally purposeful but that's where that comes from and what sort of, what category of bike do you find it most enjoyable to review or review the parts that fall in line with that category? I mean, I still love riding and racing downhill. I guess racing has been a little while, but um, the downhill bikes are really neat because there's no masking any faults. Like you're, you're going flat out, whether you, <laughs> whether you want to or not, that like extra travel definitely draws you into to really pinning it down the hill but i i love all all types of mountain bikes um even the cross country like when we went to quebec for the field test last summer i ended up having a really good time and we rode some you know pretty janky trails at one point and it was pretty incredible to see what those little cross country bikes were capable of and picking out those details but enduro bikes these days kind of fall into the you know all-encompassing yeah um category now like you can really do it all whether they're amazing at everything or not is another question <laughs> but you can literally go anywhere on them right mm -hmm. and so that kind of ties into the old free ride heydays as well you can hit jumps you can ride steep rocks you can pedal up hills and those are the basically like the the bikes that we built to ride in newfoundland was like a weird downhill bike with like tall gearing, big brakes, a bash guard, and then every frame had to have a full length seat tube so you could pedal uphill still because <laughs> they didn't exist. Yes. So I remember this one guy near me put a, um, a boxer spring in his seat tube on his hardtail <laughs> so it'd spring back up and then he could quick, like had the quick release clamp. Yeah. And he just open it and close it. Yeah. And it was, it yeah. Right. That, there was a, a product, I forget the name now, but it was like, a coil spring. It was a Joe Breeze, like easy. Oh, uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And same deal. 
And in this last couple of years of testing, you've had an opportunity to ride lots of bikes and lots of interesting things. What have been some standouts for you? Maybe some standout bikes that you thought, wow, this is something special, or maybe this is going to dictate where the bike's going to next. Yeah. Hmm. There have been some pretty unique bikes and some ones that have definitely blown me away. I think the Norco range the is Norco hard range. to get away from mentioning. Um, I think just to go into the Norco range, yeah. I think it's a really interesting bike because during that 2021 field test, we had the Norco range, we had the Norco range, the Spire, we had a We Are One, which looking back, it was the one that we could get, but actually it was comparatively undergunned. There was the YT Capra and there was the GT Force. Of those five bikes, the ones that you, you fell in love with the range, I fell in love with the Spire. And I think those are the two that have stood up, stood up to the test of time. Mm-hmm. I know that we are wanting some really interesting things and I think that's maybe, I would discount that because it was, it was undergunned in terms of travel and they're doing some very interesting things. Um, but those bikes actually still in 2023 really great bikes and the gt was interesting in its own way i I didn't it didn't feel like a refined bike to me yeah um and i think the capra was maybe focused too much on park and pop than being an all-round enduro bike Mm -hmm. but yeah i just think it's interesting the ones that we loved looking back we actually kind of got it right because i think they're still really good bikes now yeah totally and i do love the spire as well i think you know that's a great bike you can do anything on and have very limited drawbacks too. Mm. Um, yeah, so the range uh, for its downhill capabilities and where I was riding on the North Shore at the time, I was like blown away with what that could do and still pedal uphill. Um, the We Are One as well, because it was in that field test, uh, it was shorter travel, but it still felt like it had the muscle to to go against some of the longer travel bikes and now they have had incredible longer efficiency travel. in the in the. I remember being amazed at how much they got out of that 140 mil travel, whatever it was. 152. 152. Yeah. They got a lot of, um, it did a lot of things very well. Mm-hmm. I think it was hard though, like, sorry to go off, I know, I know you want to go onto bikes, but it was hard. When you're comparing bikes, you ride a Norco range on one run, then you hop on. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to be like, it, uh, you yeah. know? Um, but sorry, as, as you were saying, that We Are One was a very special bike, is a very special bike. Yeah. Yeah, I think just the, the quality and the way that it works for maybe a more advanced rider is like the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. you like, you can really ride that bike for how much travel it has. Um, I'm currently testing the 170 version, which has a somewhat equal uh, feel to it as well. Just a little bit more travel. Um, yeah. So those two bikes, uh, that prime thunder flash was also on paper, it didn't look like it had anything special, but there was just something about the geo and the way that you sat in the bike, but the suspension still had like enough support and energy to it that it wasn't either like too soft or too progressive. It was just like, it did everything really well. It was kind of like a spire, um, with a little less chain kickback maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a cool bike. And then, yeah, what else we got? What was a really cool short travel bike? A bike that, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's the Antidote that you rode. Uh-huh. Which yeah. I thought was fucking cool. Yeah. I yeah, was going to go short travel and then long travel. Oh, sorry. But, but yeah. The, I mean, that, that whole downhill bike field test that you did, some very interesting bikes in there. Mm-hmm. 
very different, vastly different bikes, like high end carbon, um, more rudimentary aluminum bikes. Uh, and they all sort of had like their own little quirks and, and bonus points for sure. Um, I, I've always loved talking about testing with you. I've got a tremendous amount of respect for the way you test bikes and I love the conversation we have around it. I've, I know I always, I always find that when I'm testing a bike and trying to understand it, I know that having a conversation with you about it is always going to help me deepen my understanding of maybe the issue that I'm trying to solve. So I've, I've always enjoyed that sort of uh, working relationship that we've had. When we talk about geometry or, or values, of values of say anti-rise or anti-squat, starting with the geometry, you've previously um, did an op-ed about getting like a medium large or an extra medium. <laughs> yeah. Which I think you're totally bang on with. I think that a lot of larges are too big for me and I'm six foot on the nose. And I think, hey, if I'm six foot and 183 centimetres and I'm not in the centre of a large, something's gone a bit wrong. Um, how tall are you? And what do you think your perfect reach figure is and rear, and, um, rear centre length is? I know so, it's on an enduro bike for, or yeah. maybe, you know, for like a gravity bike. No problem. Okay. Uh, so I'm 178 centimetres tall and that's five just shy of 510, I think, or 177, yeah. just shy of 510. Uh, right now I'm like 78 kilos or about 170 pounds. And I feel like I have uh, quite short arms and legs <laughs> in comparison <laughs> to my torso. Yeah. So I think that can dictate sort of what the perfect reach numbers are um, or geometry numbers as a whole. And for me, something just above 470 in reach and a 445 chainstay yes also depends on the wheel size the rear wheel size too yeah um but yeah generally those numbers um are what i look for and then something just south of 64 degrees for the head angle and for the um relationship between wheel size and chainstay length can you just explain that to the listener what what yeah, sure. affects what so we've seen a trend of the smaller wheel, the 27.5, come into enduro bikes uh, after they were, you know, boosting up rear travel numbers with full 29-inch bikes. Um, and then they went to much shorter chainstays with those big wheels. And then it sort of reversed and started to get longer. And then downhill riders were riding. They kind of made the first move to 27.5 rear wheels. And they realized that they turned much better and didn't really have any drawbacks because you have the bigger front wheel rolling over stuff. Um, so to sort of get that uh, balance right and increase the stability with the smaller wheel, they could go to a longer chainstay. And we've sort of seen the same things emulate in enduro bikes these days. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm. Would you say that if you had an enduro bike? Would you go mixed wheel as your preference or is it, is it just so hard because there's so many great examples of both working? Yeah, I think it depends on your goals, your size, where you ride and, and the style of riding. Like, you know, if you're a shorter rider, you like riding steeper trails, you move around the bike a lot more. Maybe you'll want a 27.5 rear wheel. I don't think there are too many people out there. I can still understand the people that want full 27.5 bikes for free riding and stuff. Um, but I would say for the general enduro case, 
most people would want at least a 29 up front. Mm. Um, it's funny, isn't it? We're talking about the sort of the extra medium or the medium large. I find it kind of bizarre and infuriating in equal measure that we've got, we've ended up in this position where we're thinking about integrating cables through the headset <laughs> so that there is an element of rede- redesigning what's going on there at the front of the bike. But actually, I think far more useful would be, and I know that people aren't going to like this, but if we're going to redo it, go to a 1.7 lower cup, a 1.5 upper, upper cup, still use a standard tapered fork, and then just have loads of reach adjust. Oh, It'll yeah. It'll make a bike fit more people in more ways for the same frame and you can fucking take your cables and stick them up your ass <laughs> you know what i mean like i want an effective adjustment and if we're at the front of the bike anyway it seems daft to me i think there's a lot of resistance about changing standards but i think that one for me or some way to integrate a tapered steerer into a reach dust headset would be brilliant because we could go from a 470 reach to a 480 reach on the same frame but with you know it comes in the neutral position at 475 and then everyone gets everyone gets their their flavor, you know. Yeah, that's always confused me. You know, just the the sizing, not not even number. Well, now it's all mixed up. There, you know, you have your T-shirt size bikes, small, medium, large, XL. Usually, just four sizes uh, with these carbon bikes that are more expensive to produce. Uh, some of the aluminum ones go to five sizes, so those gaps get smaller. But there are very few frames out there at least in enduro bikes that use or can optimize uh, the space at the head tube to move the fork steer tube and actually change that reach number uh, by some small increment, which can have a huge effect on how the bike handles and fits. Um, The only one I can think of off the top of my head is the Canyon, um, not the Spectral, the Strive. The the Strive, yes. Yeah, so that one does that. Um, There are plenty of downhill options they are not limited with the the dual crown fork having a straight one and one eight steer tube that can move forward on quite a few of the bikes we've got a nuke proof descent carbon here in front of us which can do that uh, it has a little bit more adjustment built into the frame but most of the downhill bikes you can do that with anyways uh just with those offset headset cups i think if i could just interject the problem with the offset headset cups sorry the problem with the standard um, plain gauge, like 1.5 inch steerer tube and integrating a reach adjust headset is under some situations, you might find under hard compression, they can twist. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Which happens in World Cup racing, which is why I think that, I think there's some sort of, if we're going into this, some sort of oval thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how easy that is to manufacture, whether that's harder, better, worse, but Cathy used to find that sometimes was he would crazy have a, a really big compression yeah. and it would just be too much for that front end. And then we'd have to like glue the cups in, right. et cetera, et cetera, which is fine, but it's just another complication. And also having something that is lined up exactly is also more difficult. Um, and if you go to the short position, like having a high compression, high compression load to the front wheel, when the, is in a short position, is much like an offset bearing, offset bush in a mm-hmm. shock. And high compression, it wants to go into its. Yeah, yeah. It wants to go forward, you know. Right. And so you can get you can get some twisting there. Um, yeah. Which is only a small consideration, that. but it's just something that I like about the idea about having a non-circular, an oval headset. You know. That makes sense. Um, but then again, I don't have to make the bloody things, <laughs> so it's okay for me. <laughs> me neither. No. Um, thankfully. If we kind of round off about like where the 
bike industry is going and what you would like to see from your experience. Um, we've got this thing now where everyone's getting very excited about high pivots and then we were getting less excited and now we're getting more excited again. It's like mm-hmm. this, like they're not going to solve everything. And then we actually went a bit lower, like to a medium high pivot. It's like, oh, actually, this has got yeah. something similar to something maybe like, um, maybe like the range and, and some other bikes that are coming out, which are very exciting. Um, I know recently you did, speaking of Norco, check out that new downhill bike. It seems bike brands are throwing money at downhill again, which is fucking sick. Yeah. What are some features that you would like to see or some changes or tweaks that off the top of your head in downhill enduro bikes that you'd be like, you know what, this would be more, this would be great if more people did this. Well, there are, oh, there's a lot of things I could talk about here. Mm. Like the sizing, uh, Norco has their ride align system, which really helps riders dial in based on their morphology. So we're talking about morphology, sizing. That's a great word. That sounds yeah. like one of the X-Men that didn't quite make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um so yeah that kind of explains to the rider how to set up their bike based on their their height and their ape index and their body position and type on the bike um can you just explain to listeners at home what the ape index is because that's a really interesting concept uh i don't actually remember what it is, but well, people talk about it. <laughs> basically, it's, it's your wingspan to height and the ratio. Yeah, it's the, the, ratio. the ratio between the two. Because yeah. some people have very long, normally your wingspan from tip to tip, it's the same as your height roughly. But some people it goes different ways. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but sorry. Yeah, so it's, it's a ratio of your height to wingspan. Yeah. Uh, so I had a friend who was actually on his own time, just out of curiosity, uh, keeping notes on bikes reach to stack measurements and Good man making himself. that into a ratio. Yeah. And I thought that was really clever. Um, so yeah, Norco, uh, definitely has their ride align system dialed to help people figure out how to set up their bikes best on their, based on their sizing. And then, um, yeah, the downhill bike, I think downhill bikes as a whole are getting much more specific. Uh, even though they still have their, you know, each brand has their own take on what suspension works the best. Um, we see them becoming more specialized, more complicated, uh, more hidden. A lot of bikes not even revealing what, what's going on inside of a little black box. And I think downhill as a sport is just going to keep growing that way. A lot of the brands are moving back to aluminum frames. Um, Riders are finding that the weight and stiffness can still be achieved with aluminum construction. Obviously, the manufacturers of these frames are improving their techniques all the time. Uh, and that just allows for faster turnaround on new changes and ideas to those frames. Something I thought was really cool with that new Saracen prototype is it's actually got ports built into the frame for telemetry. So you'd have to run cables all over the bike. Oh, yeah. And that makes me think... Wouldn't that be super cool to see that's how hoses were done? If you got your bike and in the carbon, the hoses are just housed in there and then you have some connector, like, you know. Damn, that's smart. Yeah, I actually saw it, to be fair, I saw that particular suggestion in the comments of a, of a, a okay. big bike article ages ago. But imagine if you just had your normal, you know, the 8 mil spanner interface that you get on your brakes and that yeah. went straight into the hose. Then as long as, when you change the brands, as long as you flush it out, mm-hmm. you could run. Shit. Sounds I mean, like we need to make a Grim Donut V3. Grim Donut <laughs> V3 with the same geometry, but the easiest bike to work on and live with. Yeah. How cool would that be? Just like um, completely integrated hoses. 
AXS wireless, so you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. So basically you've got a bike, which, because that's, I know with, look, go off on a tangent, I've always found it quite strange, the argument that if you want to change your brake, it's better to have it outside, but the likelihood of that hose getting damaged is substantially more increased with the outside. I want it inside, and then, it, because at World Cups, <laughs> what you normally do is you just change, if the caliper's the problem, you just change the caliper. Yeah. You're not there swapping, I mean, One maybe for a home mechanic, but, which is fair. And I think that when a brand says, for the home mechanic, this is great. I can't argue with that. But when they say, World Cup Racing does this, it's nonsense. I'm sorry. But anyway. Yeah, um, yeah we make the V3 Grim Donut. <laughs> I want to get, I've spoken to my friend. So I um, had the Spy on a long-term loan and it's now, I bought it and it's mine. And I was thinking about taking a Dremel to the down tube in the shape of a specialised SWAT lid. I've got a friend of mine who's a carbon engineer. He said they might need some reinforcement. Yes. But I thought it'd be a cool, good, fun project about how to break or not break your bike. You I'm know. not going to get involved in that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt, we've covered so much. We need to get Newfoundland field test. Yeah. Newfoundland? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah. Field test up and go. going and go ride some of these horrible rock moves. And, we will um, destroy bikes there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We should do like a throwback hardtail free ride field test. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll need to create our own wheel building shop down there. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's been great. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Henry. And we're back. Matt, I just want to say I thought that conversation was so much fun. I think we'll have to come back for part two because as soon as we turned off the podcast, we ended up talking loads about testing and testing procedure. <laughs> and maybe, maybe in fact, we'll have to do another podcast. I think you guys have done it before, like, you know, how we test bikes, etc. But just the procedural stuff and what we kind of look out for, maybe even our own, uh, you know, maybe in our own uh, preferences and biases you know, things that we look for that maybe other people don't. Um, that could be a good conversation to have at some point. Um, we're going to move into Music Corner. Matt, do you have your submission? Uh, yeah, I've been keeping it pretty light lately. Uh, just got back into like Matt Mays, the Arkells, uh, just like some easy, easy listening rock stuff. So nothing too, too far out there. And Matt, I think you're not alone in having some easy listening. I think, Kaz, you were saying you got some radio-friendly smooth pop, right? Yeah, just some smooth, smooth new age stuff. Uh, no, it's not. Well, it's kind of radio-friendly. I don't know. They should play this on the radio. But the band is called Tropical Fuckstorm, and the song is called <laughs> You Let My Tires Down. I think it's from about five years ago. It's a little bit older. Yeah, but it's pretty good. They're like loud, just Australian rock. And I kind of keep going back to this song. It's kind of an epic. It's like five-ish minutes long, but it really builds and has some good stuff. So yeah, check out Tropical Fuckstorm. And the band name's awesome too. I like band names that I <laughs> maybe couldn't tell you. The band grandma. I'm going to talk about has a terrible band name, actually. Nation of Language. Which is a terrible... I don't know what that means. It sounds like a... I know. I think I know what song you're going to say, though, and it's really good. I want to hear There's it, but I think really I know this, songs. and it's very I good. I got really Rum into uh, September again for a long time. It's so good. I mean, maybe I'll put that That's in. The they did a really so good, good live version of that, and it is fucking unbelievable. But this is actually a song mm-hmm. called Gouge Away, and basically it's like, it's a mixture, I'd say, between like 
maybe New Order and Dream Pop. And I love Dream Pop. So it's just really light, fairy. And if, um, yeah, I hope hope you like it. I think it's great. I'll, I'll put this song in and, and the live version. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening to the Pink Bike Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Uh, I'll be getting into some tropical fuckstorm. <laughs> and, um, and it's September to... again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Hopefully we'll be able to record the yeah. next one. Maybe even in a one as we're actually off to field test tomorrow. So thanks for listening, guys. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>